This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. There were once 500 monks who, after being instructed by the Buddha, each in, at their, in their own capacity, according to their own temperaments, their own abilities, retreated to the foothills of the Himalayas to spend the four months of the monsoon period doing an intensive retreat. And to do this, they first had to find a suitable place in which to turn inward. You know, a place that was neither too hot nor too cold, that I was that was not exposed to the elements, that was not too hilly, not too flat, with enough shade, with flowing water nearby. And so they searched for a while and they found a beautiful hillock, the the uh, sutra says, with a cool forest grove and a clear spring. And there were a few villages nearby and there was also a market and so this was the perfect place for them to go on their alms rounds in the symbiotic relationship that continues to this day i was thinking about this as i was reading this you know back then it was a begging bowl and food that was offered freely in exchange in return for a chant for a blessing a dedication today it's retreats and classes and donations, which, by the way, you know, I'm no longer a monk, and yet your generosity, your dana over the last uh, six months, well, actually over the last few couple of years for some of you, but certainly the last six months, um, you know, make this possible. You know, the, the dharma, of course, has no cost. It has no price, but software and hardware does. And so your, your support really has, has made it possible for me to keep improving the way I do this. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful for that. Um, but so in this, this passage, as I said, the monks are looking for a place of practice and it actually echoes another text that I really love um, that's describing as the Buddha uh, takes that bit of food from Sujata, you know, he, he realizes that the ascetic practices that he's been doing aren't really bringing him any closer to his, uh, to the freedom that he's been seeking. And he remembers the, the meditation that he very effortlessly uh, slipped into as a child, as he was sitting, um, watching the spring uh, festival and he wonders, I wonder if this is the path. I wonder if this is the way that I've been looking for. And then he himself responds, yes, I think this is the way. And so he decides he's going to look for a place to practice. And he says, I will sit down and I will, I will not get up until I realize myself, essentially. And so he's looking for a place to get still to get quiet so he can see 
things as they are. And, and the, the sutra says, quoting him, in search of what is wholesome, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I wandered by stages in the Magadan country until eventually I arrived at Uruvela. And there I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove with a clear flowing river with pleasant smooth banks and a nearby village for alms going. And the thought occurred to me, this will serve for the striving of a person intent on striving. And I sat down there thinking this will serve for striving. And you know, there's really, there's nothing extraneous in these teachings, you know, the rhythm, the repetition, the description, the, the, the pretty detailed description of this delightful place that is suitable for the kind of work that we're doing this moment, this minute. All of it is part of, and, and, and parcel of the practice and the teaching, right? So it's not even that it's preparation for, it's not a prelude to, it is part of the practice itself. I mean, think of how you prepare yourself to sit, making sure, echoing Master Dogen's instructions that the room is neither too hot nor too cold, that you have enough air, but there's no draft, that you've eaten enough, but not too much that you're going to want to fall asleep. And then you prepare your place, the seat of enlightenment, you prepare your mat, your cushion, your bench, your chair. Perhaps you offer incense, you light a candle, you touch a photograph of an ancestor, you say a prayer silently or aloud. All of it to ready your body and mind for this inward turning. And so in the same way, the, the monks are looking for this place and they find it and they decide to spend the night. And then the next morning they go into the, the village and the villagers really like having them there. They, they really love this, this daily give and take. And so, and, and this, this give and take, which personally, I think, unbeknownst to anyone, keeps the world in balance, right? We so often think, Zazen, a, a, a common view that your parents have, for example, when you first tell them what you're doing, your family, that, that Zazen is doing nothing. It's a selfish activity that benefits no one but yourself. I really think it might be, it might just be what is keeping the world from tipping over altogether. Right? That it's because of the hundreds, thousands, millions of seekers all over the world sitting in caves and in forests and in deserts and in mountains, in monasteries and temples, in apartments and suburban homes. It's because of all of us that that connection to, to the realm of the real is kept alive and it's what's keeping us grounded. And maybe the villagers recognize this, or maybe it's just something that they, that they sense. But regardless, they ask the monks to stay. And they give each of them a little hut 
at the edge of the forest with a cot and a stool and some pots for cooking and for bathing. And what neither of them knows, neither group knows, is that in this forest, there lives a crowd of um, tree-dwelling divas. And they, being a very respectful group of celestial beings, they don't want to be living above the monks. You know, that is disrespectful. And so they leave their tree dwellings and they retire to the hills surrounding the forest and they patiently wait for the monks to leave, thinking that they'll be gone after a day or two, because after all, they're wandering ascetics. But a week goes by and then another week goes by and the monks remain and the divas are just left there wondering when can they get their houses back. And so finally, when it's clear that the monks are not leaving, they decide that they're going to frighten them. And so they gather together and they hatch a plan and then they start sending these terrifying visions and this horrible uh, stench and these dreadful noises as the uh, monks are sitting. Think of it as the sirens and the neighbors and the, your child you know, who wants, to, uh, who wants your attention as you're getting ready to sit. Think of it as your own mind, your own self talking to you as you're trying to concentrate. And of course, the monks, as hard as they try, they can't. They can't, you know, they, they, they're battling the smell and the noise and the apparitions until finally, at their wit's end, they decide that they're going to go... Um, ask for the Buddha's advice, which is interesting. You know, they don't gather together and say, okay, what can we do? Or they don't sit there and think, okay, what can I do to work with this? They say, Let, let's go and find the Buddha and see what he says. And the Buddha grasps the situation at once. And he says to them, there's no better place for you to be. He says, monks, it is only by striving there in that place that you will be free. So go back and take with you this chant, which will be your protection. And he teaches them the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the chant on loving kindness. But notice what's happening here. You know, the Buddha is basically saying it is only in the middle of your disappointment at things not being what you want, in the confusion of your mind, in the middle of your restlessness, your boredom, your apathy, it is only there that you will find the freedom that you're looking for. It's not when your mind is quieter, not when your body is healthier, not when your life is more conducive to the kind of practice you think you need to do. It is in the mess in the pain, in the discomfort, and the fear, and the repulsion, and the aversion, and the anger, and, 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 and. Is it difficult to hear that? But the monks listen, and they go back to the grove, and they chant the Karaniya Sutta, Karaniya Metta Sutta every day, and the divas hearing the words and feeling deeply moved by the monk's kindness and their wisdom, they move back in. And then they're the ones 
offering the monks protection day after day from the elements, from wild animals, from wandering bands of robbers. And as the, this chant, many of you know, is really a portrait, is really a portrait of someone who has made loving kindness their beacon, but it's really describing the features of a person who's chosen to be free rather than to be right. One of the most difficult and most profound shifts that you'll ever do in your life. And it's a long chant, so I'm not going to go through it. I just wanted to pick just a very short section. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, forsaking none, the great or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and those living far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another. Let me not deceive another, deceive myself, or dislike any being in any state. Let me not, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Essentially, let me not discriminate. Let me not judge, preempt, assume, conclude, and therefore dislike another. And of course, this is a very powerful teaching. And I think it's equally important to apply it to ourselves, to the many beings in our minds. The dictator, the conspirator, the judge, the executioner, the perfectionist, the bully, the critic, the cynic. All the many beings that we edit out. You know, all those thoughts and feelings. We stand at the threshold of our own mind and say, that is an acceptable thought, that one is unacceptable. Bad Buddhist, bad Buddhist. even though every single one of us has those thoughts in a moment of jealousy, of anger, of resentment, distrust. And so the sutra is saying, don't harm another. Don't wish them harm either. But I think it's also saying, don't do that to yourself. Guilt and recrimination won't help. Denial or avoidance won't help. What will help? To not forsake yourself in any way. All those parts of us that we do criticize, that we shun or hide or feel embarrassed by. The ones we keep close in order to control, the ones we push away. The mighty thoughts the medium feelings, the tiny but constant put-downs we throw out without hesitation sometimes, even though we would never do the same to someone else, not consciously. Bring them close 
the sutra is saying, make space for them and hold them gently like a mother protecting her child. I did not quote that, that phrase, that, that section. Like a mother protecting her child. Because you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that we're willing to make a stand and to work hard to right injustice, right? Ecological disaster, corruption. But all, all of those various elements, you know, that conspire to create, you know, those aspects of our society that are oppressive, you know, our insistence in exceptionalism, in supremacy, our obsession to produce and to consume, our, our conviction that, believe, uh, that um, worth, that worth can be measured. All of these beliefs and all of the actions that uphold them are inside as well. So in Buddhist terms, we say when this is, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. So in other words, things co-arise, inside or outside, as above, so below. And this is a basic irrefutable truth. You know, white supremacy, patriarchy, you know, there's systems, but they've been made possible by individuals, by people who are too scared to give up control. Corporations are destroying the environment because of individuals who believe it's more important to have what you want than to want what you have. And so outer work is absolutely necessary, but so is the inner work, without which no lasting transformation is actually possible. And so, and that's why I think that a, a big part of this work is what the poet Galway Kinnell said in his, in his poem. I've, I've quoted this before, St. Francis and the Sal. He said, sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. And I was thinking, you know, maybe during the time of the Buddha, it wasn't so necessary. Maybe they were secure enough in their own beingness that they didn't need to think about this. They didn't need to be taught this. They didn't need to be reminded of their divinity. Sharon Salzberg tells the story of being at a conference with the Dalai Lama, uh, where I think she asked a question about um, self-worth and, and how do you work with it when, when your self-worth is low, when you're, when you're doubting yourself. And the Dalai Lama looked at the translator, puzzled, and said, I, I don't understand. And so a, a few of the people who were present explained what self-doubt is, what low feelings of self-worth were. And the Dalai Lama is still frowning, completely puzzled, thinking, but, but, but why would you think such a thing? You're a Buddha. You have Buddhahood. Everybody has Buddhahood. Why would you think such a thing?
we do. We do, right? Given the state of our world, given the state of our collective and individual body and mind, we do need to relearn our loveliness, our holiness, whose root comes from the word whole. And if this sounds too mushy, too soft of a teaching, too localized, to actually respond to the cries of the world, you know, just, just consider for a moment, what takes more courage, to open or to close? You know, building walls is easy. It's living in open space that is hard and true and necessary. For a few hundred years at the beginning of Buddhism, before there were monasteries, these, these wanderers lived in open spaces. I mean, they sheltered in, in caves, but they practiced outdoors in forests and groves and charnel grounds. St. Francis, much later, also, he forbid his monks from sleeping in any kind of dwelling. There was the, the humility of that act, but I think also imagine just the, the intimacy, the connection. There were fewer lines between inside and outside. You know, now we spend our days in climate-controlled cubicles, and so it's harder. You know, we, we, we work, in fact, we work hard to keep the outside out. And yet I think of Zazen as the practice of going inside in order to travel outward or to travel out in order to come back in, in order to see how vast we truly are. You know, that, that um, essay that I've given to some of you uh, by Flora Courtois, she speaks of having a dream like this, like she's in this, in this um, cubicle, moving kind of Lego pieces around. And she looks and, and as far as her eye can see, it's like she's in this big office building and everybody's doing exactly the same thing. And one day for some reason she decides to turn around and she sees this huge window with a vast field outside. And she realizes it's always been there, but she never saw it. You know, I describe it as we, we lock ourselves in the broom closet because even though it's dark and it's smelly, it's kind of familiar. It's comfortable in, an, in, a, in a tight kind of way. Now, to actually open the door and peek out and realize it's always been vast open space can be a little scary only when you stand at the threshold. Because if science has shown that we're made of stardust, I mean, spiritual seekers have known this since the dawn of time. And so if you think about it, if you think about it in this way, you know, every one of those little criticisms, self or other, 
every one of those judgments is like is like grabbing a pen and just drawing tiny little crosses, red crosses on the sky, trying to do that. I mean, it's foolish. We would never do such a thing because it's not how things are. Deepa Ma once said, the only thing that stops you is your mind. The only thing that stops you is your mind. But the mind too is vast and without limit, which means that the very thing that stops you is unstoppable in itself. So, If an hour from now, or five minutes from now, you've forgotten every word of this talk, at least remember that. The very thing that stops you is unstoppable in itself. This is a fragment from Christian Wyman's Small Prayer in a Hard Wind. Wind seeks and sings every wound in the wood that is open enough to receive it. Shatter me, God, into my thousand sounds. Let me just read that again. Wind seeks and sings every wound in the wood that is open enough to receive it. Shatter me, God, into my thousand sounds. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.